Well, good morning. Um, it's great to, great to be with you guys this morning. Um, really, I'm excited to share with you uh, what the Lord's been laying on my heart the last few weeks, and uh, for you high schoolers that are there that have been coming on Sunday nights, um, this will be familiar ground for you, uh, and thank you for uh, y'all being, uh, it's just a blast, I love being with you guys. So I'm, I love you guys too, it's fun, the high schoolers are just a little more fun. Um, so uh, this morning, um, we're going we're gonna to take our uh, lesson from, I've got two scriptures I want to go through. We're going to look, uh, look at Jesus in two scenes this morning that I think uh, just in God's sovereignty has uh, ordained and planned this for this particular Sunday um, that I think will speak, speak to our hearts in really, uh, really neat ways. So uh, let me read for us Matthew 26, um, the passage in your bulletin. And uh, yeah, may we pay attention to God's word. Then Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See the hours at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so I, I want to do, uh, I, I always ask questions, and uh, so most of those are, I want answers, not necessarily rhetorical questions. So uh, we're going to be doing some interactive stuff with these texts this morning, uh, so just be ready uh, when I ask you a question. So right now, I'd love for you to just, just think about the most emotionally healthy person that you know. Everybody got somebody in mind? Emotionally healthy. That's an interesting question, right? Anybody volunteer an answer? I'll volunteer first. Uh, my wife is actually the most healthily emotional person I know. Uh, she's amazing in that regard. Anybody else got, got a thought? Great. Very good. Very good. Maybe rate yourself on an emotional scale. Um, if you, uh, 10 being I'm super emotionally healthy, 
One, I'm like an emotional wreck most of the time. Okay, so everybody who fits from the scale of six to ten, raise your hand. That's okay, that's okay. You're not bragging. That's good, okay? Uh, people who are one to four, raise your hand. And some of you are like, I'm not raising my hand and not doing this. Um, yeah, so it's interesting, isn't it? What criteria in your brain do you use to evaluate emotional health? We don't really have a category for it, right? We, there, there's a gamut of human emotions. Let me just throw up this thing for you while I share this with you. This is an emotional wheel, a feeling wheel. And I, I really love this kind of stuff, so uh, if I get like too hyper speaking, forgive me, but this is just a, a neglected area in the church, right? We have this massive part of what it means to be human is our emotional life. And yet, we rarely work on it until it gets really out of hand. And then we go to counseling and stuff because it just, uh, it's gotten out of hand. We need to, like, if your anger gets out of control too much, we go to anger management or we talk to a counselor, right? All these aspects of what does it mean to be emotional? There's many wonderful resources that we have in the counseling world of what it means uh, to help us work on, uh, on, on tangible stuff of, uh, of becoming more emotionally healthy. Uh, but yet, one of the most wonderful resources we have has been right in front of us the entire time. And we just never saw him this way. It's the person of Jesus. If I want to know what it means to be perfectly emotionally healthy, I should probably watch the one who did it perfectly. He had perfect emotional health. Well, that we've not really thought of Jesus in those ways because oftentimes we think of Jesus as more stoic, right? Kind of emotionless. Uh, stoicism is a person who can endure pain and hardship without showing feelings or complaining. That's the way Jesus has been defined oftentimes. Um, and we have all these antidotes, right? They're fine. They're really good, right? Be aware of your triggers, right? Increase your window of tolerance. If you know the counseling industry, that's if your window of tolerance is small, that means your emotions like dictate everything in your life. But as you grow more health, healthily emotionally, your window of tolerance gets bigger and you can handle things uh, in a better way. So those are all great. They're important skills to develop. But in our union with Christ, we're being sanctified emotionally. Right? I've got this long list uh, of complaints uh, or struggles that I've had in my own heart because growing up in the church, I heard stuff like this all the time. Don't trust your emotions. Ever heard that? One of my arguments against that is, is that we've not really understood what the word mind means in Scripture. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In the Jewish understanding, in the Greek understanding, that was the entire person. That was not just here. And man, we're really good, aren't we? As the PCA to work on here. 
So you're telling me, when you say don't trust your emotions, you're telling me that this is not as fallen as this emotional person. That's what I read, that's what I hear when I hear those words, don't trust your emotions. So you're telling me to trust my brain more than my emotions? It's just as fallen. Do we ever think about the fact, the reality of the fact that sanctification, the spirit, is actually bringing life, not only to our minds to transform the way we think, but to transform the way we feel. That we might be more healthy emotionally. So if the spirit is at work in you, he's making you more emotionally healthy day after day, week after week, year after year. You're becoming more emotionally healthy than you were before. But we don't work on those emotions. They don't, we don't think of them as things and aspects of, of what it means to be fully human. We just kind of wade through them, and then when they get out of hand, we address them. So if you look at these aspects of this emotional wheel, we're going to focus in on some, It's really interesting. This is actually from a, a Christian counselor friend of mine. And if you were to take all these emotions, Jesus, you can find, find if you look at right at the center of them, Right, we're going to focus in on a little bit of surprise and a little bit of sadness today in these. But the further out, what's interesting, remember these words out here. As we go through these two texts together, if I, can, if I have time, I'll remember to go back to these. Isn't it, it's, you, know, you do a little statistical study. Uh, in the Gospels, 60 times... There's words of emotion used in the context of Jesus. Let me just give you a few of them. It compassion, anger, indignant, consumed with zeal, troubled, greatly distressed, very sorrowful, depressed, deeply moved, grieved, sighed, sobbed, groaned, wailed, in agony, surprised, amazed, rejoiced greatly, full of joy, desired, and loved. Those are all words used to describe Jesus who was the fullness of humanity, the one who really and, really and truly beheld what it means. So let me, read, let me read this passage. This is our passage for today. I really actually love this. Um, we, we're waving palm branches. You're, you're gonna, I just love this. This is so cool. So Luke 19. This is setting up the, this is Palm Sunday. Today is Palm Sunday. Next Sunday is Easter. We celebrate the resurrection there is a lot that's going to happen this week in the life of Jesus. Okay? So when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, I tell you, he replied. If they keep quiet, the very stones will cry out. So Palm Sunday, right? It's, it's, Jimmy did a great explanation at the beginning. It commemorates there were palm branches. Why do we call it Palm Sunday? Very simply, because trees, palm trees, were common in the area, and the people who were wave, started waving palm branches were taking branches off palm trees and waving them and laying them down in the road. So we call it Palm Sunday as Jesus is riding as this victorious king into Jerusalem. And that was their expectation. Just a little bit of historical background for you. 
This is the spring of AD 33. Jesus is going to be hanging on a cross in five days from now. Four days from now. According to Zechariah, a victorious king would ride in into Jerusalem in this grand military victory. And several, that's what they were looking for, right? Several kings in the past had done this. The most recent was Judah Maccabee, about 150 years before Jesus. And they would, he would came into town riding a stallion. He'd purified the temple. And they remember this, even in Jesus' day, on one of the accounts in the Gospels, Jesus is walking in the temple on the day of celebration, which is to commemorate Judas Maccabee, Judah Maccabee cleansing the temple and purifying. And they thought, yes, our Messiah is here. Judah Maccabee is here. And they celebrated him. Well, they did the same. They thought the same thing with Jesus. Jesus is coming in on this donkey, though, a beast of burden. And they're waving their palm branches, right? Hosanna to the king. Hosanna to the king. Jesus is going to come crush the Romans. He's going to declare victory. Our Messiah is going to set up his kingdom. Yet Jesus is here to defeat the greatest enemy, who is death, sin and death, and declare victory and set up a kingdom in a, in a way that they don't really get yet. How do you think Jesus would react? How would you react? Open question, okay? There's thousands of people yelling Hosanna, waving palm branches, putting garments and palm branches on the ground. You're on a donkey and you get to ride in the parade. How would you react? Yes, sir. Confused? Okay. This is like a homecoming parade, like sitting on the convertible Corvette in the back. Like, right? What would that be like? Would most of us go, yeah, I don't really want that much attention. Don't want to be sitting up there. It seems like this great celebration, doesn't it? Everybody agree with that? Even on Palm Sunday, we come in here ready to celebrate that the king has come. We're celebrating because we're on the other side. And we can see the perspective now. And we should celebrate it. But I want you to notice Jesus' reaction. I want to, this is really important. Kids, are you ready for this? Sorry if this like crushes your celebratory idea of Palm Sunday. Verse 41 says, as he, Jesus, approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would be bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embank embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side they will dash you to the ground, you and your children, within your walls. They will leave one stone. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So what, a, what jumps out at you as odd? Children in the room. Teenagers, I include you, sorry. Students and older, college, whatever. 
What's odd about Jesus' reaction? Okay, good. It's a celebration, but Jesus is like, like death and doom. Yeah, very good. Very good. Notice, notice his response. The Greek actually is that Jesus is wailing on this donkey. It's kind of shattered, like I don't know why we miss this a lot. It shatters a little bit of our perspective on Palm Sunday and what's going on. You, you Google images of Jesus on Palm Sunday and drawings and pictures have been done. He's like, like celebrating with everyone. But notice what, when, when does Jesus start weeping? Yes, when he sees the city. So I want you to imagine this, this drawing scenario. I may have done this with you guys in a Sunday school or something before, maybe in here. So the elevation change from, it's probably not as dramatic as the drawing, so sorry about that. But it goes from 2,700 feet on the Mount of Olives down into the Kidron Valley, 2,100 feet, and then back up into into the city of Jerusalem. So really what's going on, more than likely, is that because of the elevation change, there's this trail that goes along like this for Jesus to get to the bottom of it. And just imagine the scene for a moment. Jesus comes from Bethany. He comes across the Mount of Olives from the east. And he's on a donkey. Everybody's waving palm branches and celebrating. And all of a sudden, he peeks over a little rise in the hill. And the city of Jerusalem comes into view. What happens to Jesus right at that moment? He's going to cry. I want us to get more detailed. Sorry, I'm going to push a little bit. What's going on physiologically with Jesus? Okay, heavy-hearted. Okay, keep going, keep digging. Filled with sorrow, very good. Great, yeah, thank you. Personal dread, very good. Yeah, great. Keep, keep digging. I know this is a little bit weird because we just don't dig this deep into the life of Jesus. What is going on physiologically with his body as he's riding on a donkey? Okay, tension. All right, let me make it a little easier. That's good. What happened? When's the last time you had a good whale? Like just, just letting it all out, right? What happens to your body physiologically when you're weeping? Or right before you weep? Maybe shaking, okay? Okay, yeah, great. 
come weak. How else does your body react? Yeah, very good. Very good. Yeah, there's the, that's, that's great. Yeah, could you imagine? I mean, as he's coming down that mountain, right? This is okay to do, by the way. I just want to free you in your own heart, in your own study of the scriptures. Like, capture things in your imagination. We just don't think of Jesus in these categories or people. We think systems and theology and not people most of the time. Imagine what it was like for Jesus to be riding on a donkey. He crests the hill and he feel, his heart rate starts to increase. He feels the pressure. He starts to feel, his eyes start to flood. And then it just pours out as he sees Jerusalem. Imagine what that must have been like. He doesn't fight it, which is really interesting. One of the, one, I think one of the most important aspects of this is emo, emotional health, right? Here Jesus is in front of thousands of people yelling, Hosanna to the king, he's here. And Jesus is just, he's just letting it out. I would say that last time that I had a good whale cry a few weeks ago, I was by myself. Probably wouldn't stand in front of thousands of people and just let my emotions out. But part of the beauty of Jesus is that he's so secure in his father's love for him that he can let those emotions out and not think not even, not even, it doesn't even enter his mind of what is their opinion of me going to be if I do this. That's part of the reason we're so emotionally unhealthy as fallen beings is because we care what other people are going to think about our emotional life, right? Because we know it's not healthy and it's being sanctified. I love the beauty of Jesus and the freedom that he has to just let it out. He's wailing. Why? Because he sees the destruction of what's going to happen to his people. He sees the realities that he, does, he not only loves these people, but right when he comes into the, to view, the tears start flowing because he realizes they've rejected Jesus. They've rejected him as the true Messiah. They've killed the prophets before him. And this flood of all the people in that city in 36 years from now, it's going to be destroyed. And they're without hope because they won't look to him as the Messiah, as the true Messiah. So, right, there's this, you know, three, you know, 36 years after Jesus' death, there's these Jewish leaders are, already, are finally going to find Right there, they're going to find what they were looking for, a human king who would overtake the Romans. They would, they would annihilate a Roman legion 
And they thought, man, we've got this. But three years later, right, the Roman army didn't become the Roman army and last a thousand years overnight. So three years later, this general by the name of Titus returned to Palestine, destroyed every stone in AD 70. It was said that they burned the city and everything was destroyed. Lots of people died. Everything was destroyed, so much so that the gold uh, melted into the cracks of the ground and was no longer to be found. Interestingly enough, they believe that archaeologists believe that Titus directed his catapults at the city of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. It's the very place where Jesus is just weeping for a people who would not believe that he was the true Messiah. I want to open up another scene for you. And this is the Garden of Gethsemane, and watch what Jesus does. So it's the night, the night before, uh, this is Thursday. So this coming Thursday is Monday, Thursday. They have the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper with his disciples. They leave that upper room, and they go across the Kidron Creek. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the slopes, the, slower, the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives said to be only about 300 yards from the city. So it's pretty close proximity. It wasn't that long of a hike for them. So this is, I looked it up on my Google calendar. This is Thursday, April 2nd, the year 33 AD. You can actually go all the way back to those times, see what day it was in our calendar. So, yeah, they, so they get there and here's what, Happens. I want you to, as I'm reading uh, or looking at our passage again, I want, us to, I want us to zoom in in particular. I want to set the scene for us. Okay, so, so here's the, let me go through here. Here's the scene for us. Can everybody see that? Why is it black? Yeah, good. Great. So Jesus leaves the upper room about 8 or 9, 10 p.m., somewhere in there. And he walks, goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's there till about midnight when they believe about the rest happens somewhere between midnight and 2 a.m. So this is the middle of the night. It's dark and Jesus goes into, into Gethsemane. Look on your, in your bulletins. Look at this passage in Matthew 26 so I can leave this drawing up here. All right, I want to, I want to, he takes, uh, he takes, who does he take with him to the Garden of Gethsemane? Open questions, quick ones. These are, I'm going to rapid fire on a few of these. All his disciples. Okay, who's missing? Yes, good, Matthew, yes. He's missing Judas. Important factor. Okay, notice what he says to the 11 that he takes into the garden. He asked them to do what? Sit here while I go over there and pray. And then what does Jesus do? I'm not helping you. Keep going. Yes, 
Thank you. Yes, he takes his best friends deeper into the garden. All right? What do you notice about the language when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him into the garden? What does Jesus share with them? Yeah, sorrowful and troubled. It's interesting that he didn't tell the 11 that. But he told his best friends, his closest, Peter, James, and John. So imagine the scene, right? They, they, have, they have the 11, and then they, Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John. We would act this out, but we don't have time. We did it in youth group. Okay, and then what happened? Then what does Jesus do? What's he tell Peter, James, and John? Remain, what was that word? Yeah, but what was the preposition? With me, right? Be with me, Jesus is emphasizing. And then what does Jesus do? Goes a little further into the garden by himself. Sorry. So he goes, yeah, he goes further into the garden by himself. So if you look at this, this drawing, I don't know if you can see it on there, but right, there's a sense in which Jesus takes the 11, takes the three, and then Jesus is alone. He's alone in the garden. Now take a minute in that passage again and tell me all the descriptive words that you hear or that you see in scripture of how Jesus is doing. You've already said some of them. Yeah, good. Great. Yeah, any others? How sorrowful is he? Yeah. Yeah, if you did this exercise again, and you took out your phones and I said, hey, Google Jesus in Gethsemane. And you look at all the pictures. The majority of the artwork that's done has Jesus with a little gold halo over him. And his face is in the garden like this. With this very serene look on his face. What are we watching right now? We're watching a Jesus who is deeply disturbed and troubled. Do we think that this week in Nashville and the horror of what happened to a sister church of ours, that Jesus is in heaven going, no. I think Jesus is deeply troubled and distressed at the and he's probably begging his father, can we go back today? And the father's just, not yet. I'm just begging us to think of Jesus and the realities of who he is, that the fullness of humanity now sits 
on the throne room of heaven, or as one theologian put it, the dust of the earth is now in the throne room of heaven. You have your Savior who weeps with you. He's weeping with our brothers and sisters who lost their children. He's weeping with them. Let's quit making Jesus plastic or some theological idea. He's real. He sits on the throne room right now and he will come back riding a stallion the next time. One theologian wrote, the prince of peace is troubled. Jesus is supposed to be self-controlled in charge of every situation. But here, he seems to lose it. He seems helpless and his emotions completely unravel. He continues to say, it would not be too much to say that Gethsemane was a terrifying experience for Jesus. I mean, Luke says that he's sweating drops of blood. You know, that condition is called hematidrosis. No, I'm not a medical guy. Hematidrosis, right? It's a condition where, where the capillaries underneath start to, type to bust and you're actually sweating drops of blood. A real condition. Here's what's really fun about this is who actually wrote that? I put it in there as an, like if you do a harmony of the gospels, you see it. Who wrote it? Yeah, Luke the doctor. Okay, here's a little tricky question for you. Was Luke present? Luke was not present. How did he gather his information? He gathered it from eyewitnesses to the event. So who likely did Luke get this information from? Yeah, from one of the three. So imagine you're Peter, James, and John. You're one of his three best, closest friends. Jesus returns from the garden three times. One of those times, Peter, James, and John noticed Jesus in that condition. Could you imagine the distress they see on Jesus' face? I love this question too, and I didn't realize this until we were going through this in the youth group. Have you ever wondered why, one, in the first place, thought of this this morning, why did Jesus take the 11 to the garden? if he was going to be the only one arrested. Second question is, why did he return three times to his disciples? Man, that's a great thought. I love that. Thanks for sharing. Like the three days he was in the tomb? Yeah, very cool. There's lots of threes and three times I think Paul pleaded with Jesus to take the thorn in the flesh away. Yes, sir. Three is a good number. Jesus is like three. That's great. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus goes back to them three times? There's a little preposition that somebody said back there, and he mentions it three times in this passage. With. Tells the 11, stay. He took them with him. And then he tells Peter and John, James and John, Pray with me. What did Jesus want? 
Yeah, he wanted them with him. Doesn't that just floor you? Like, I thought he was the sovereign king of the universe. Yes, he is. But why does he need companionship? That's right. The fullness of his humanity in this moment. He just wants his friends to be with him. All right, there's a, there's a lot of beauty in this, right? The, the realities of you and I, and listen to me, this is super, super important, especially for you guys that are uh, younger, that we are not ever made to grieve alone. We are not made to enter into suffering alone. So if anything ever happens to you that's hard and difficult, you're free because of the example of your Savior who needed someone else to be with him in the midst of the suffering. Don't ever endure it alone. You weren't made for that. So if you got stuff going on in here, adults too, that's troublesome or you've made a mistake, and you're really, really scared to tell anyone about it, you're not made to bear that alone. Jesus is bearing something much harder. Right? He's, he's about to bear the cup of his father's wrath. He's about to take on the wrath for sin that you and I deserve, and he goes deeper into the garden talks to his father, right? I love the beauty of that example, right? It, it, it is, what does Jesus do with that troubled spirit? He goes to his father in prayer. We too should go to our father in prayer, but we also seek companionship. And the third thing we learn from Jesus in this moment is he's really showing us what faith looks like. Jimmy mentioned that earlier. Right? He's showing us what faith looks like. Even his physical posture, he falls to the ground on his face pleads with the father three times. He laments to his father, let this cup pass from me. And there's no answer. So he goes back and seeks encouragement. I think it's one reason that, that uh, I think it's John mentions that Jesus sent an angel to strengthen him. The very thing that Jesus was best at, no one else could do for him. The great comforter Jesus goes back to be comforted and his friends can't bear the cup with him. And his father sends him an angel to strengthen him. I think because he could find no human that could endure it with him. The cup was so bitter of drink, taking on the weight of your sin and my sin, the sins of the world upon himself. And he prays to the father, he's showing us that in the end of all the sorrow, all the struggle, all the stuff that went on in Nashville that doesn't make any sense, right? And we're, it's okay to grieve and not try to make sense of it right now. But in the end, what Jesus shows us is that we trust the Father. It's a walk of faith. That Jesus knows his dad knows better. And that the plan of redemption has, has been set. And this was the only way. Let me just close by reading you this paragraph. Um, I highly recommend this book, Jesus' Emotions in the Gospel. It's hard to find and it's expensive. 
but it's worth a read. I think it's a thesis dissertation that's out of print, but if you can find it, great. Actually, I, I gotta give that back to somebody. Find my own copy. Um, so, uh, the, yeah, just this is fascinating to me. He said in this book, he says, for the disciples, this is a cup of blessing as they are reckoning among the many whose sins are forgiven. For Jesus, at the point, the cup is anything but a cup of blessing. In Gethsemane, he grapples with the awful realization of what the cup means for him. To put it graphically, he now looks into the cup and sees with burning clarity that its contents are none other than his own blood. The cup contains his blood of the covenant. As he peers in the cup, he shrinks from it in horror and revulsion. Understandably, he pleads with the Father where there might be some other way. In the infinite realm of divine possibility, is there no other way in which the sins of the many can be forgiven? The silence of Gethsemane is his answer. And after praying through times, he bows to the Father's will. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you show us, um, man, you're the author of life. You made us in your image and that means we're created with these deep emotions that sometimes, Lord, we confess to you that are really unhealthy and we, um, you know, sometimes we suppress them and don't want to show them. Sometimes they come out quickly and we've uh, shown too much. Can you just help us uh, realize that you're the author and perfecter of our faith and that every ounce of who we are can be clearly sanctified and redeemed because of what you've done on the cross and because who you are in your person. So Lord Jesus, may we look to you, the one who is sanctifying every part of our being. May we love perfectly because we have been loved perfectly. Relying on the power of the spirit that is work in us and knowing that he who is greater in us is greater than he who is in the world. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.